Vermont Viewpoint is a public affairs program produced and funded by WDEV and the Radio Vermont Group. We welcome listener feedback. Email your comments to vtviewpoint at radiovermont.com. This is Pat McDonald, your host for Vermont Viewpoint on WDEV. Um, joining me this morning, uh, as soon as they call in, um, will be Amy Green, who's the executive director of the Barry Area Development Corporation, and Sharon Alexander, who's the media coordinator uh, for uh, BADEC, I guess you call it, B-A-D-E-C. Um, and they, are, want, they call to talk about what's happening in Barry um, with the flood. And... Um, I don't know if you know much about BDEC. Actually, Sharon not only works for um, Barry Area Development, but she also works for um, uh, the Downtown Development Group in, in Barry and is a very active young lady. So I was hoping that she would join us. She's um, uh, with the Barry Partnership and with Barry Area Development. But they wanted to call in and talk about um, the Barry Community Relief Fund and um, what what's all going on in Barry? Um, as you know, Barry got really hit hard, and um, I uh, was helping. Just one day, found out how old I really was when I was helping um, digging out the mud that was just in in houses over by Community Action. The homes over there, and I'm sure in many other parts of the city, were just the basements were just feet of mud. It was incredible. Um, and um, so the Barry Area Development Corporation um, put together the Barry Community Relief Fund, and they are accepting um, applications and um, would be um, would be wanting to hear from everybody in Barry that's got a problem. The thing that got me the most um, was here, right here on WDEV, Bob Nelson from Nelson Hardware called up that they when after the flood and was begging on radio for um, somebody to come help because the, um, and I think it's sort of a natural thing. Um, Montpelier um, got a lot of, of people to come and help, and, and Barry not so much. And um, obviously Montpelier is the capital, and there's a lot of people that uh, work there and are invested in Montpelier. And so I sort of understood that, but Barry needed some serious help as well. And... Um, I know a lot of the churches, uh, my church and others, were um, gathering people and going downtown and helping where they could. Um, but um, it's I, I, I don't know what we're not. I'm here in Maine, and uh, I'm feeling a little guilty at the moment, but we're going to come back next week. Um, I had people on the show to talk about Montpelier, to talk about uh, uh, Vermont Dart yesterday, and... Um, they talked to the Vermont Dart is a group of people that um, um, take care of the animals up at the odd, and they talked about the mitzvah fund. And I love that word mitzvah. That uh, it's a Jewish, a Hebrew word. And uh, uh, so I called them and asked them to come on the show um, on Tuesday, and they're going to talk too. So we've had a lot of people come on the show to talk about what's happening in the area, and. Um, I'm just hoping that uh, these two will will come. They have an amazing uh, website, which they have developed, similar to uh, Montpelier Live. And what they've done on their website is to um, put very, um, very specific uh, topics where you can find out information. 
and um, the topics uh, that they have links. They've got the Vermont Emergency Management Business Recovery Guide, which is an excellent guide. I had trouble downloading it, um, but I read it on computer and uh, uh, very detailed, uh, really got some great advice uh, for people that have businesses. Um, it really goes into a lot of um, a lot of information. The other things on the website were the Vermont um, Vita, uh, the EPA the government uh, website, ACCD. Um, they had the Preservation Trust of Vermont on there and what they offer. Um, they also had information about the Vermont Main Street Flood Recovery Fund. Uh, and, of course, the Agency of Transportation has an excellent um, website that uh, talks about road closures in Vermont. Um, WCAX-TV, photos and, and videos that uh, they said people have sent from all over the state, and they've collected um, a lot of pictures, and it, it's really stark. I mean, it really shows you what's happening, not just here and not just for us in, in central Vermont, but uh, around the state. And the one thing that I wanted to talk about uh, today is uh, on the website they have 19 tips um, for bringing historic properties back from a flood, which um, is very helpful. Plus they have a, um, a, a Vermont flood guide which, uh, which talks about how you prepare your home um, for um, moving back in, for making sure it's called Tips for Drying Out a Water-Damaged Building. And um, I'd like to. I'm going to go over it with you um, in just a second. If, after I go through this website, and they had tips for drying out, as I just mentioned, a flood damaged building. They also this is I thought this was fabulous. They have a, a, a link that said saving wet books after a flood. The one thing I noticed when I was helping um, dig out somebody's basement is the the books are completely utterly soaked you know and they weigh like a brick they're just so heavy and hard to hard to gather because they fall apart and they talked about how you can restore these um, books which I found fascinating when I was commissioner of personnel we had um, in what is it 1992 right we had the flood and all of our personnel records were destroyed because of course they were in the basement and um, what the state did was send them off somewhere in New York, I have no idea where, to a place where they would freeze-dry the documents so that all the water was observed, sort of like freeze-dried coffee, and it was just um, hard mud, dirt, whatever. And, and somebody was able to take each page, take off all the, all the, the mud and the dirt and everything, and then copy those pages for us in the order that, that um, they took them out of the files. And we got our files back. Uh, it took a while, but we got our files back, um, and they were in great shape. Um, and I, I was fascinated by the, whole, by the whole concept. I haven't heard that they've done that with anything uh, this year. I'm sure personnel is not keeping the records in the basement anymore because those are records that the state has to keep. Um, and I just, I'm sure it did cost more than a dollar ninety-eight. I would think to do that. But it was fascinating to me to, to hear them talk about how they managed to return our files to me, just freeze-dried, freeze-dried paper. Um, anyway, this article, I have a thing about mold, and I'm sure you all do too. It's pretty, um, pretty frightening. 
um, what can happen with mold in the house. And this is this document, which you should print off. It's tips for drying out a water-damaged building. And um, let's just see what I could read here for you, because it goes it's several pages, and it really talks to you about... Um, um, it, how important it is to dry out the building and make sure that all the... And, and they actually said that fresh air, this was interesting, fresh air is better at drying than if you have the fans and whatever else we bring down to the, the dehumidifiers and all that stuff, that fresh air um, actually helps um, get rid of the water and um, much better than any of the other things that you could use in your house. I mean, we use, we do the fan and the dehumidifier, um, but if we could, we should open up um, the windows, and, and uh, that's a better thing to do. Um, and um, you also have to um, use disinfectant, as you know, protect, and you've got to protect um, your eyes, your mouth, and your hands, and um, uh, as much of your body as you can because one does not know what is in that water. Um, and even, in your, even stuff in your own basement, if it gets wet, um, it could, you know, mix in with the water. And water is very heavy. Um, I tried one time. We had a little problem in our basement, and um, I was by myself, and so we had a vac, and I vacuumed up the water. But then I couldn't lift it because it's so heavy. Um, so I had to drag it over to the um, sink and take a pail and get the water out that way. Um, but so you've got to have these things handy um, just as a plan B. Um, but this document goes on to um, how important it is to get the mud and silt and, and unknown contaminants. That's the word. That's the word they use. Don't even know what that means. Um, and they talked about plaster. What to do with plaster walls. Um, they talked about sheetrock, um, and here's the thing they said about open windows in all rooms, even if there is no evidence of moisture retention. If the windows are swollen shut, remove the inside, stop bead to free window sash, just get the window opened and get the um, fresh air in. And they talk about washing down wood, uh, including trims and doors and mantles and stairs to remove mud and silt. Um, mold and mildew can be cleaned off using a weak solution of Clorox and water or commercially available disinfectants. Remove wet carpeting and furniture from the house. Um, if wood floors are coated with mud, wash down with fresh water. Uh, floorboards may begin to warp and they need to be um, picked up and seen what's, what's underneath there. Um, so just be careful when you're... Um, um, when you're trying to get your house ready for um, for you to move in, and um, so that's it. I'm going to keep talking to you about the uh, these kind of issues, and I um, hope my guests join me. Uh, this is Pat McDonald, your host for Vermont Viewpoint on WDEB. Hi there, this is Pat McDonald, your host for Vermont Viewpoint uh, on WDEB. Don't know what's happened to my guest this morning, but we had this all planned out, and I'm. Sure, something's come up that uh, is causing trouble on on the, their end. Um, my guests were supposed to be Amy Green, Executive Director, and Sharon Alexander, Media Coordinator from the Barry Area Development Corporation. And um, I was just, if you want to call in and talk a little bit about your homes and what you're doing to, to make them safe to return, I would really love to hear this because um, 
I think every every one of us needs to hear this. My biggest fear is has always been a mold in a home because you hear these stories and uh, you don't know it's there until you get sick. So um, why don't you call in? It's two four four one seven seven seven. It's two four four one seven seven seven. So I was going through this document, which I think is amazing. Um, it's on the BDEC website, um, um, Bay Area Development website, and it talks about tips for drying out a water-damaged building, right back to our topic about um, mold. Um, and they were talking about how, how you prepare your home, how you wash things down. Um, I w- was, would love to get a restaurateur on the, uh, if you want, anybody wants to call in um, and um, uh, talk about how a restaurant in particular, I mean, the care that you have to do to your restaurant to make sure that you can open to the public with, uh, with food and all that stuff. And um, that just is in the back of my mind about um, how they do that. There must have been hands and knees. Um, and, uh, oh, Bill from Montpelier is on the phone. Bill, how are you? Um, well, I'm, I didn't get flooded. But I wanted to talk about that. First of all, I want to tell you something quick. There's a controversy between the dredging people and the, um, what I call the tree huggers. Yeah. <laughs> the nature people, which I think I am both. But here's what I would like you to look up. There is a thing called a mini dredge. It doesn't dredge with a monster-sized backhoe. It dredges right. by sucking. Now, I, if you could look that up. I looked it up, and my son, who happens to right, right now be in Canada, so but we're the only two people I know who have looked that up yet. There is also, I've looked it up, and there's a company called Piranha, like the fish that eat people. Piranha Mini Dredge. And if you look up that, they I see pictures of what they have, and they have got a mini dredge that they have a picture of it sitting in, in a pickup truck, a big a full-size pickup truck. This is something that a city or, you know, a town could buy and, and use and, and dredge without harming the, the river. And with, you could still have your pet fish. Wow. Well, I am a um, mini. I'm a mini dredger fan. If you remember, 1992, um, they had the ice jam oh. under the under the bridge, and that was because there was so much silt that would wash down into the river, and there was not much room between the silt and the bridge when the ice jam came down. And um, I I actually said out loud, "Why don't we dredge the river?" And oh my word, um, I know. I heard from. I heard from lots of folks that that was a very bad idea, but I think there must be some compromise. Um, oh, I know there is. Wh- yeah. Can I say something I mean, else? In 1992, I was working in Burlington at the health department, and I had to deliver something that day to finance, which was in where the tax department is. And I parked in the parking lot at the high school and walked across to the bridge at Bailey Street. When I came back, I had to wade back almost a foot. <laughs> I wouldn't have gotten back home in the Bay <laughs> Yeah, that no, that was that was quite the event. Um, not, nowhere near as as damaging as this one, though. I saw an aerial view on um, 
Montpelier live of where the flood went this time in Montpelier. It's just everywhere. It's just terrible. Thanks for calling in, Bill. I appreciate it. You should bring that subject up to um, Paul Costello at the um, uh, meeting at the State House next uh, week on the 22nd. Is that on Wednesday? No, Tuesday, I think. 22nd is Tuesday. Oh, there's a meeting. I thought it was Wednesday, but if it's... Whenever okay, the well, I'll, I'll, I'm going to keep, keep track of that. Yes, definitely. Yes, you should. You should do that. Or you can write on Montpelier Alive website, and they have a place for um, for comments. And I actually wrote a comment about dredging on the website. I have a whole lot of I have a whole lot of ideas that uh, come up. The, the Gary home right next to where I am got terribly hit. Um, yeah. We didn't because we were up and we don't have a basement. But uh, it came came awful near, and I'm concerned about the next time. Right. Well, we should learn from this one and other previous ones, so I'm glad they're doing that workshop because I think not only Montpelier will benefit, but any surrounding towns who get some good ideas. So thanks for calling, Bill. I appreciate it. You're welcome. Bye. Okay. Thanks. See you. Um, so um, and I, I do, if you want to call in and talk about judging, I know I got myself in a whole lot of trouble by actually suggesting that way back when, but it makes sense to me because they say leave the rivers alone, but the silt wasn't there uh, except when it got flooded down, so it's not something that belongs in that, partic- in that particular part of the river, and I think with some common sense, and I think as Bill, Bill mentioned, you don't bring in the big, the big dredgers. You do something reasonable to um, keep more water flowing um, easier. Um, because the damage is just, as we have seen, is just staggering. Um, so um, anyway, um, they were talking about, um, we were talking about using fans and all that stuff, and all they keep talking about in this particular document is that air circulation is the key to completely drying out a structure. So heaters and air conditioners, um, should not force the drying process. So w- what they're saying is na- natural works um, uh, and let the air circulate and dry out um, the, um, which I hadn't actually thought about before. I'm, I'm one with fans. Bring the fans down, bring this and that, but just open the windows and let the air flow. Um, and so this is a great document. You should um, t- um, open up the the website and um um, get it, get it down. They also have a uh, Vermont flood guide, which um, it's got sections in there for municipalities, for homeowners, um, for things that you should do in advance preparation, uh, and things that you need for insurance purposes. I'm sure there are pictures that are that would be helpful um, if you take. I, and we all have our um, cell phones these days. Just walk around with a video and. Um, take a picture of your house. Doesn't take very long, and it's there um, for reference if you need it later. Um, and then what you should do immediately when when you hear you know something happening and caution and emergencies. And then if this is interesting, who to contact immediately after a flood. Um, I'm sure you know we all should have. Well, I've been talking about doing go go packets. Go bags. I just, I'm going to go home and make myself one. I used to have one years ago, and it gives you a little sense of comfort that um, if something, God forbid, happens, you pick up the bag and you've got at least some of the essentials that you would need to to start regrouping and rethinking what you what you want to do. And one of these things, as they said, who do you call? 
you need phones and uh, phone numbers and to keep a list of key phone numbers with you. And I know we all have our cell phones, but without um, electricity, it's sort of hard to keep those things going. Um, so um, go bags are the way to go. And then they talk about in this flood guide, after the flood waters recede, um, the big emphasis on safety precautions, um, and then what to look for in your basement, particularly for mold. And like in most basements, I'm assuming I have chairs and, and um, um, you know, furniture, and that gets wet. And uh, wood is, is something that can cause a little problem as it dries. And, and um, over the years, I've sort of forgotten to, to check the, the chairs. Um, and I'm learning this time that I better do that. So when I get home, I'm going to do that. Because uh, we did get water in our basement. Um, not much, but we were saved. So anyway, um, we have another break coming up. If you want to call in and talk about this with me, I would appreciate it. Uh, 244-1777. This is Pat McDonald, your host for Vermont Viewpoint. Hi there, this is Pat McDonald, your host for Vermont Viewpoint on WDEV. Um, looks like it's just me for the next half hour and has been for the previous half hour. If you'd like to call and talk about uh, the topic, which is the flood and the damage to, to uh, particularly Barry City and Barry Town, um, I wanted to focus on them, uh, that area, because we've had Montpelier and my town of Berlin. Um, on talking about what's happened in their area. If you want to call in 244-1777, I was just going over this, um, uh, the things that are on the website of um, uh, the Barrier Area Development Corporation, and the uh, one thing that was remaining on the on the list that we, I was going through was uh, treatment recommendations for historic building materials, and we just talked about that a little bit. Treatment of plaster, treatment of uh, uh, wood floors and trim, interior paint and wallpaper, and all these things that you're going to need to consider if you are living in and or work in a historic building. I heard it's not a historic building, though. The federal building is not in great shape, and... Um, uh, people in there. I don't think that they are uh, working in there now, but it sounded to me like they were thinking about moving somewhere else. I may be completely out to lunch, which happens on occasion, but I'm pretty sure I heard that, and it'll be interesting for those of you who deal with the feds and rely on some of their services um, to uh, to see what's out there, and I'm sure they're going to be talking about it in the um, meetings that they're having in, in um, Montpelier. Um, but it would be interesting to also know what stores and restaurants have opened back up in Barrie. Um, are we starting to see things coming coming to life a little bit there? I'm sure people are working very hard still to um, clean out um, their homes and um, offices um, I guess good thing we got used to working at home through COVID. Not that that's a good thing, but um, anyway, the um, BDEC and uh, they've created the Barry Community Relief Fund, which um, it was in response to the historic flooding, and um, they um, are looking at it to help businesses, homeowners, and. Uh, um, every, anybody or everybody, homeowners and individuals across Barry that need some help. And um, they're saying in their introduction that they, 
they expect this to last a long time, and I think uh, reconstruction and revitalization and all the the words that they're using to um, to um, make sure that the towns come back, um, maybe not the same, maybe better, which is the discussion that they're having in Montpelier at the time. If you've got an opportunity to make things better, this may be it. And uh, we need to learn this time because um, everything we're hearing says it's going to happen again, maybe not tomorrow for sure, but in the next X years, and we need to be prepared. The, one of the biggest um, movements is to get things out of basements, um, you know, vital um, equipment uh, for your home and your business, uh, and as we learned in personnel, get the records out of the out of the basement, um, and just think a little bit about where that water goes. Um, but anyway, I um, I'm going to continue with my dredging idea. I think that makes just a lot of sense. I mean, when you're comparing. Um, I was listening to the to the Montpelier discussion up at the college the other night, um, and people were saying that the river's got to go where it wants to go, and we have to allow it to do that, and we have to make room for the rivers. And I I agree with it, but to but to a certain point, um, in my mind, there's a point at which people <laughs> and our our possessions and and things that we hold dear. Um, may need to trump the the river slow. We don't want to um, do any damage to the to the wildlife or to, to the uh, habitats and habitants of the river. Um, but um, there's got to be a little common sense here, and um, even just a little bit of uh, of dredging, a little bit of movement, um, if it makes a dramatic impact on uh, on what the flood is doing. I don't see what's the what is the harm? But that's another discussion. Um, anyway, the Barry Community Relief Fund is available. You have to call Barry Area Development, and online there is an application which uh, tells you exactly what um, what they are, what, what the grants are about, and they um, have a guarantee here that 100% of the tax-deductible funds raised will be directly allocated to those most in need. Um, they will grant small uh, small businesses, homeowners, and individuals across the area. So these are grants. The funds will be administered by the Barry Community Relief Fund Board of Directors. Um, and I would suggest that uh, there's so many opportunities um, around to, to ask for money and to find money to help. Um, I think the key is how quickly it's going to get to you. Um, but um, I think it's a uh, uh, people are just really working so hard to to get services out and and to hear what what you need. Um, and um, I would hope that if um, Barry's got any group uh, group meeting to come out and to talk about uh, what you need um, and or um, you know the uh, to send in suggestions as. Um, uh, Bill just did. Um, he's gonna. He was at the meeting in Montpelier and to send in suggestions. I've sent in suggestions, and I don't live there. I live in Berlin. Um, but we need some some serious thinking here about what to do, and it doesn't have to cost a fortune. You can do things um, that maybe um, not not have to cost us and and uh, our communities a lot of money. Um, just kind of think outside the box. 
So if you want um, grants um, and you're in Barry area, please check with the Barry area um, development fund, uh, development corporation and uh, see what what they have uh, to offer. Um, and also, I'm having um, SBA and um, the um, uh, FEMA. Oh my goodness, how could I forget FEMA? Um, the SBA and FEMA to come back on board, uh, to come back on the show and to update us on what they are doing because um, they are out working very hard to try to get to us as much and to get to you as much uh, service as they can um, and to get as quickly as you can because right now I think people just need need some funds to help them. Um, so if you want to call in and talk about this, that would be great. Two four four one seven seven seven. And I'm going to talk a little bit about the Barry Area Development Corporation, um, which is very active in Barry. And um, I was on the Barry Partnership, and I worked part time for um, for Barry City uh, when um, when Tom Lozon was mayor. Um, and also, obviously, the Barry Air, the fund itself will only um, work if uh, people donate. So anybody who wants to donate, there are companies who are doing matches. If you, if uh, somebody else donates and matches their donation, they'll double it. I mean, there's all kinds of uh, very exciting um, things that are going on here, um, and uh, and obviously it's time to to jump in and and uh, help as much as we can. Um, so give us a call if you want to talk about your experiences. Um, it's really, it's a, a frightening time, and I'm hoping that uh, people that are struggling out there are not only getting their buildings and, uh, and living space in, but they're also taking care of them themselves because um, that's important, and we tend to forget that part um, in, uh, in when we're running around with our chicken, what is it, the head's cut off, chicken without a head or something. Um, that we forget to take care of ourselves. Um, so I'm going to talk a little bit about the Barry Area Development Board. Um, there's people on that board that you know very well, Bob Lord, Dave Rubel, Dave uh, Sigal, Al Flory, Robert, uh, Bob Hutchins, Carl Rinker, Christy Bellavance, and Sarah Field, Tony Campos, we all know Tony, um, Edmund Roos, Mark Browning. These are great people, in, and Amy White, very active in your community. Um, they have been working to um, uh, bring new businesses into Barry, um, to worry about how, how it looks, the city looks, and be attractive to tourists, and um, bringing to, to you entertainment. Um, they've got some great, and that's what um, I wish Amy... Um, I wish Sharon had uh, had been here. She works for, as I said before, the Barry Area Development Corporation, and also the Barry Partnership. Um, just thinking of ways to attract uh, businesses, uh, ways to attract tourists. Sorry, and we need to let them know, tourists, at some point in time, that we are open for business, um, and we've got a great area. Area. I love Barry. I'm sure I've told you that many times before. Um, we're the granite center of the world. Um, some wonderful events happen around the, the granite uh, industry. And, of course, the Granite Museum itself is such a treasure. Um, and you can just walk in when it's open and um, go take a look at what are the artists and uh, artists are doing in our area. 
Um, and then you've got the um, Barrick Place. Uh, Sue runs it. Um, it's wonderful arts. We are so lucky in this area to have so many amazing artists and uh, talented, talented people, actors, singers, uh, painters, um, you know, you just name it. And we've um, uh, people that work with uh, ironworks and, and uh, uh, furniture. I mean, just amazing talent here. Writers. Um, it's just we are very fortunate here, and I know that um, they are working very hard to help us. Um, we sometimes forget the artists in our, in our community need help as well. Um, and I also, we're going to talk about farmers on our, on our return because they are truly, truly hurting. Um, their fields are not in the shape they were before uh, the flood, and that's a serious problem. Um, so we're going to take a little break, and we'll be back for the last 15 minutes. Hey there, it's Tom McDonald back with you with Vermont Viewpoint on WDEV. We're talking this morning about Barry and Barry City. Um, I was focusing on the uh, Barry Area Development Corporation and all the work that they are doing. They have established a grant uh, program, um, certainly asking for contributions from those who can help. Um, a lot of the businesses are setting up uh, matching grants, if you, uh, matching dollars. If you um, donate $100 to their $100, they'll double it, and, and there's all kinds of uh, incentives that are out there for people to donate. And 100% of it is guaranteed to go to those who need it, um, to businesses, individuals, and um, people's residential areas. It's got hit hard. And what really amazes me is the amount of mud that um, that uh, is, is everywhere. And um, we were just talking a little bit before on the Barry Area Development Corporation website. They have a lot of very informative documents and links to other places where you can get some help. Um, and I think Montpelier is holding a series of four. They've held two. Well, they held one already up at the college. of, uh, They had 300 people show up in person and 250 uh, on the web, on the um, Zoom or whatever they were using. And um, a lot of people, um, Paul Costello did a great job in uh, facilitating the meeting. And it's just tough to talk about, um, particularly when the, the State House meeting happens, they're going to get down to the um, nitty-gritty of, of ideas. And uh, we just heard one before from Bill from Barry about dredging. I'm sort of a, a fan of minimal dredging. I understand the impact to the river from a natural resources perspective, but I also understand the impact to central Vermont um, if we don't do something about the water. So um, there's a compromise somewhere. Um, and um, there's, a, there's just a lot of help out there, and I know it's, it's very difficult to, to piece it all together in your head. I, I really can't imagine what folks are going through having to uh, deal with all of this stuff and having lost um, so much of their possessions. Um, you know, when they ask you that question, what one thing would you take um, in a fire um, out of your house? And I'm like, well, I want, it. I want everything that's on my walls everywhere. They all mean something to me. Um, but as people say, it's just things, and um, we're very lucky that we have had minimal loss of life, um, which was, um, which is, uh, which is great. Um, certainly sad for the folks who did lose their lives, but 
Um, this could have been uh, a whole lot worse. Um, anyway, um, Baydeck, um, as I read the list of uh, board members for you, these are people that are involved in the community, that know the community, um, that understand its needs. And um, I would suggest that you call um, um, the folks at um, Baydeck, um, Amy Green, and um, also uh, Sharon Alexander, who um, works for um, uh, for Barry uh, in a variety of capacities. Um, media coordinator, trying to get businesses to come here, um, trying to assist businesses that are already here, and, and uh, hoping we hope that they stay, um, and um, to, uh, to attract tourists once we get our, ourselves um, bigger, better. Um, maybe um, it's time now to talk a little bit about what we'd like to see changed. Um, it doesn't have to cost a fortune. Um, you don't have to think that big. Think things that, uh, that are reasonable uh, to accomplish and can be accomplished. And I think that if we have a list of accomplishments and we start ticking off that list, uh, people will feel better when they see things being done. Um, if, we, if we wait too long to get all, all the stuff done that needs to get done, um, people kind of um, feel sad about it and, and um, have trouble being positive and, and having hope. But if you start seeing things happening, um, they would perk right up and, and get more energy. Um, and I think that uh, BDEC and Barry Partnership, and there are so many other entities in um, Barry, Barry City, Barry Town, um, they work very closely, obviously, with ACCD, um, Agency of Commerce and Community Development, and um, there's a great working relationship in Barry. Um, that may not be um, too visible, but it's there, and it, they work very hard, and obviously with the uh, administration in Barrie. Um, and so there's a lot of work to be done, and I think um, it's going to last a long time, and we need you to keep up that strength and to keep positive. Um, there's so many um, attractions in Barrie, and... Uh, you know, you've got the Millstone Trails, you've got the Hope Cemetery, you have the Granite Museum, you have um, Studio Arts Place. Um, uh, Sue does a great job in providing artwork around the city. Um, lots of times there are those um, uh, wonderful um, shows that they present where people, um, I just saw the other, it was a couple weeks ago, they had cars and stuff again outside and um, um, on stands where people are displaying. It's kind of fun to walk around Barry. Um, when they do those kind of um, kind of programs, um, I love Barry because it's a community, and um, they have the farmers market, and it's a place to congregate. And I think having a gazebo in the middle of town is is my idea of a of a uh, a really great town. So um, um, anyway, um, we will um, hang on a second. Here we go. Um, we will. Um, Hope that you will keep you updated on what's going on. As I said, we have this, the uh, um, Small Business Association and FEMA coming back to talk about. Um, and the uh, SBA is an amazing resource for you all. Um, they work very closely with FEMA, and um, I think that uh, there is help. Um, and I, they're making it very. I think they're making it easy to to know um, where to go, what to do, um, who to ask for. Um, and to get as much help as, as you can. Um, so um, anyway, I, um, 
uh, I hope that uh, you all are okay out there. I would encourage you very much to stay tuned to the next show. I have Ed Baker coming on, who is and uh, who is a um, master social worker, master level social worker, and advocate for addiction health. And he has had himself a struggle on a personal level and and doing uh, amazing for a long lot of years um, in that field. And he knows the um, addiction. Um, what would you call it? Um, the addiction issues and problems um, like the back of his hand. So um, anyway, um, we will see you. Um, stay tuned for Ed uh, Baker. He's coming on in just a minute, and we will um, we'll be back uh, in, in just a few minutes. Pat McDonald, your host for Vermont Viewpoint on WDEV. In decades past, you opened a business, hung out your shingle, and the customers came. Today, hanging out your shingle means creating an engaging website. The modern consumer is using the Internet to find businesses like yours. Are you positioned so you'll rise to the top of their search? Let the Radio Vermont Group Digital Services work with you to make sure you're visible online and to target your marketing to location, demographic, and interest. Learn more at rvgdigital.com. This is Pat McDonald, your host for Vermont Viewpoint on WDEV. Um, welcome back, and I'm glad you're stuck in there with us. I have an amazing guest with me uh, for the next hour. His name is Ed Baker. He is a, what is the phrase that they used? A master-level social worker and advocate. Um, who has worked in addiction health since 1985. He's uh, also uh, is a host on the Addiction Recovery Channel on CCTV Vermont, and he has been involved with personal recovery for 38 years. Um, Ed, welcome to the show. Well, thank you. thank you, Pat. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very pleased to be here with you today to address this most uh, pressing this most pressing issue. Absolutely. And we are going to save Ed just sent me this morning, um, which we are going to talk about at the end of the show, an amazing op- opinion piece that he did that I haven't put down since, uh, since he sent me before. It's just an incredible document. Uh, but Ed and I met, I have to tell you this story, Ed and I met in 2018 when the opioid crisis was on everyone's mind and being covered by the media just about every day around the clock. And we were asked by Jolinda LeClaire, who was appointed by Governor Scott to be the Director of Drug Prevention Policy for the state and to and oversee the Opioid Coordination Council. So Jolinda asked us to develop a series of videos about the cycle. I guess that's what you call it, and I, I came up with the word cycle of, of uh, addiction. And Ed and I, Ed hosted four and I hosted four, and I'm just going to read this list quickly before I turn it over to Ed, was The Science of the Brain and Addiction. That was a great video. Ed uh, interviewed an expert in this area, and we're going to talk about that. Um, Next was Treatment, Recovery, and Recovering Coaching, Prevention and Schools and Community-Based Enforcement, Wellness, Non-Pharmaceutical Pain Management and Treatment Tools, Co-Addiction Disorders, and then we did a a wrap-up, all of us, um, we call the series Working Together to Create a More Resilient Community, 
and brought a lot of experts in each one of these videos. They're on Orca Media. If um, anybody wants them, we can certainly send them to you. Um, Ed, could you talk about your background, which is totally amazing, and uh, then we can well, talk a little bit about this series of, of um, videos that we did. But tell us a little bit about yourself because it's very impressive. Well, thank you, Pat. Um, yeah, true. You know, I think about it a lot. I think about my life, you know, and my experience. And, and basically, the, the best way to describe it is that I've had the great privilege of, of living two lives. Um, the first life was characterized by despair and, and all everything that comes with very severe addiction. Uh, I had suffered uh, multiple traumas as a child. I had an inner world that was characterized by depression, and I found psychoactive chemicals that gave me some relief, and that grew into addiction. Um, it, it, it wasn't, to, to say the least, it wasn't a pleasant life. And um, I've injected drugs in public places, uh, I, I've been incarcerated, I've been coerced into treatment, I've contracted uh, fatal uh, uh, disease, hepatitis C. Oh. Um, the consequences of, of the life um, that people with addiction are, are kind of cornered into living in, in our culture. And um, I've suffered the, uh, the pain of, of stigma and, um, and hopelessness. For some reason, you know, you can call it uh, luck, fate, God, effort, I don't know, whatever you want to call it. For some reason, I've had the privilege of, of being granted a second life. And that life began in uh, 1984. Um, I stumbled into a group of people that offered me what I like to call unconditional safety. And, and in that setting, I began to, you know, reconnect with that little spark of hope that hadn't yet been extinguished within myself. And since then, it was a long time ago, it was 39 years ago, I've had this incredible privilege of living a second life. And the second life has been characterized by hope, love, connectedness, um, fervor, you know, giving back to the community. You know, I'm a parent, I'm a husband, I'm a grandparent. I've been a therapist with people who have um, severe substance use disorder. I'm retired from a 30-year career. And today I'm an activist. Uh, I'm an advocate for people who use drugs. And um, I, I, I often wonder why, why it is, because I have that kind of inquisitive bent, you know, what 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 is it, you know, that separates the ones who die from the ones who are privileged with a second mm -hmm. life? And um, that's been my my quest is to offer that privilege, to find ways to offer that privilege of a second life to people who are um, who have been taken by addiction. Oh, Ed, that's an amazing story. Um, really really makes you think a little bit and we know we have such a problem with addiction these days um, and, and mental health that goes along with all of that um, 
but you started the Addiction Recovery Channel, which um, I think you're doing fewer videos these days, but um, uh, how did that all get started? Because that is, an, I've watched many of those shows, amazing shows. Yeah, yeah, and uh, I'm so happy that you asked about that because it's, it's such a joy in my life. You know, it came, I like to think that everything is preparation, at, and and I also like to think alongside of that, that you never know what you're being prepared for. And, and and the Addiction Recovery Channel was a perfect example of that. Margaret Harrington had me on her show on CCTV to talk a little bit about uh, the opioid uh, crisis and the overdose crisis. And, and I was on her show, and at the end of the show, she said, Ed, you know, did you ever think about having a show of your own? And honestly, I had never even, the thought had never crossed my mind. So with that little seed that she planted, I began to think about it. And at the time, I was an activist um, with, with uh, the, the goal of, of helping to eradicate stigma. That was my calling. I was giving workshops. I was doing public education on that. And I thought to myself, what a beautiful opportunity to have a show, a TV show, uh, focused upon educating the public. I liked, I liked to call it um, unlearning stigma and unleashing compassion. To educate the public, to have people on in the know, um, service providers, people with lived experience, researchers, uh, people in politics, law enforcement, to have people on in the know to talk about addiction, to talk about people with addiction, to talk about recovery, to talk with compassion, to cut through stigma, to give a thirsty, a very thirsty Vermont public true information and help them to kind of throw off the shackles of stigma um, that they had been taught. People are taught stigma. It's not a natural occurrence. In our culture, we've been taught stigma really in, in, in a very fierce uh, way since the early 70s, since the beginning of the war on drugs, we've been inundated. So the Addiction Recovery Channel was born out of a devotion to reduce stigma, increase compassion, and that's the recipe, I believe, Pat, of um, saving lives. Less stigma, more compassion, and, and we will do things that are based in love and, and we will save, we will save lives. That's great. Well, I've I've listened to I don't know maybe uh, ten or so of your of your videos on the channel, and I learned a lot and started to understand because um, one of the videos you did for uh, for Jolinda was the science of the brain and addiction, and um, the message there was addiction is a brain disease. It's it's not what I think people, I don't know what people actually think of, of, of addiction, um, if it's a weakness or, or what, but you really categorize it as a, as a brain disease. Could you talk a little bit about, about that and how that fits in with all of uh, what we're talking about? Yes, yes, certainly. You know, and it was uh, uh, Dr. Uh, Peter Jackson, uh -huh. who was an MD and an addiction psychiatrist at UVM, he was the guest, 
And I ran into Dr. Jackson um, last week at the Recovery Summit, and it was such a joy to see him. It was it was such a joy to see him. He now directs um, the, the the addiction uh, treatment department at the University of Vermont Medical Center. So he's a true expert. He's part of the new breed of um, you know a medical specialists that deal with addiction, and he was eloquent in his um, description of addiction as a disease. What, one of the, what we've been taught about addiction is that it's sort of a choice um, that, that people have made their bed and now they have to sleep in it, that it's a, a combination of sort of a, either a moral weakness or like a criminal kind of a personality or, you know, it just... You know, we we create definitions of addiction that don't understand the very nature of addiction, that it is not a choice. It doesn't have to do uh, with a weakness, a moral weakness or a criminal personality. What happens is we call it a hijacking of the brain, that, that the administration of drugs over time will engage um, centers and processes in the brain that are very, very powerful and will create an impulse or a compulsion to self-administer drugs. And this, at a point when addiction occurs, this continued self-administration of drugs, in spite of consequences, will happen even if the person on every level does not want to engage in that behavior. So rather than being a choice, it's behavior that is totally against a person's own will. They just cannot stop uh, because the um, mechanisms in the brain, basically the prefrontal cortex where people have the capacity to inhibit behavior is malfunctioning. A lot of people, people describe it as, as an overabundance of a go system toward the acquisition of drugs and an underabundance of a stop system. Ed, um, I asked you on the, the show because before COVID, as I said before, we lived, breathed, and, and talked about addiction and opioid use, and we did all those shows. And, and then COVID happened, and all of a sudden it's like, no problem here. Uh, you don't hear about anything. And I, I actually asked somebody I know and, and uh, respect, and I said, why do you think that? And she said, well, but you've got Narcan. And so it's not as, as uh, a problem as it used to be. And I, I said, mm, I don't think that's totally correct. So um, I asked you to come on. And where are we in Vermont with regard to opioid use? And uh, what's, what's happening out there? Well, just let me, let me say one more thing about addiction, Pat, because I think... Oh, yes, please. That this idea of, of addiction being a moral weakness or the pursuit of pleasure or some sort of anti-social or asocial personality, you know, criminal behavior, all of these, uh, you know, myths that we've been taught cause our culture to respond to people with addiction with punitive measures. The jails are filled up with people that have addiction. You know, they've been alienated, uh, discriminated against, uh, marginalized, punished. Uh, and, and for that reason, uh, it makes it very difficult for them to trust uh, 
our culture and to trust the services that we're providing them. And one one of the things that we're seeing now, and this will go to your question, is that um, um, people with severe addiction who are dying uh, frequently are, are are not getting the kinds of services that they need, uh, not getting the kinds of services that they need presented to them in the way that they need them presented because of this punitive atmosphere that exists. And that is a result of stigma. And we all need to do our best to learn about addiction, to learn about people with addiction, and to reduce stigma. And in that way, we will enact programs and programming that um, uh, makes it easy for people to engage or possible for people to engage and possible for people to get better. And Vermont has been making some, some strides in that area. So... Your question is, where are we today with 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 with, with, with addiction, with with mm-hmm. uh, f- uh, fatalities? Is that your question? Yes, please. Yep. Well, if you look at the um, statistics, it's 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 shocking. Um, from 2012 to 2022, the number of deaths in Vermont has quintupled, so mm-hmm. it has multiplied by. Um, by five, from around 50 Vermonters taken from us by accidental overdose death in 2012 to 243, 243 people in one year, Vermonters, our neighbors, taken from us in 2022. And that number, when the um, provisional uh, deaths are are resolved, there's some which, which doubtful about whether it's an overdose or 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 what have you, when the number is final, it's likely to be around 250 uh, loved Vermonters um, taken by overdose in 2022. You know, um, you mentioned COVID, and I, and I think it's really important, uh, you know, the, to note the way our system responded uh, to COVID. You know, we were all in, all in. We did a good job. Bravo. To the health department and its partners, the way we handled COVID was was uh, was um, you know like an example uh, to many states. And I do believe that that we can and should and and will eventually um, marshal those same type of resources toward people with addiction. You know, my my conviction uh, is that Vermont is right now as we speak in a state of public health emergency. It just hasn't been declared as such. And that's, I believe, um, motivated by, by political uh, reasons. But, but if this were any other population, Pat, where you saw a quintupling of death from 2012 to 2022, and an escalating velocity of death uh, from year after year, would not we be responding as this were a public health emergency? Exactly. I agree with you. And we we were fairly well known, Vermont, for our hub. I think hub and hub and spoke. Hub is that it? The hub and spoke concept has that been hub working? Or oh, yeah. Thank you. Has that been working? Um, as we had intended it to and hoped it would? Hubbin spoke, Hubbin spoke was a model for America and probably a model for the world. And um, right. 
you know, we were very proud. It was Dr. John Brooklyn who was on the show. He came on the Addiction Recovery mm-hmm. Channel. And it was a way to uh, reach out to many, many people uh, with, with, with severe opioid use disorder. <clears throat> the problem was was that there are around maybe 10,000 people in Hub and Spoke and 10 or 15,000 people outside Hub and Spoke who were not seeking services. Mm-hmm. The, the problem then had become infinitely more complicated with fentanyl. Fentanyl is the most potent opioid known to the pharmaceutical industry. It's measured in uh, micrograms rather than, rather than milligrams. And it's present in the entire unregulated drug supply in America and therefore Vermont. Uh, not over 93% of the deaths in Vermont involve fentanyl. Fentanyl is, it acts so quickly that that and I, I don't want to I don't want to you know you know bring up terrible images to your listeners but it acts so quickly that that um people if the dose is lethal people will die immediately upon injecting the drug they will stop breathing and die so quickly that the liver has not even metabolized part of the drug yet because wow. the person died before blood could get from their brain to their liver to be metabolized. So it's like instantly, instantly. This is contaminating the entire drug supply, and this is why we're seeing rising deaths in Vermont. Well, you and I, you and I talked, I said to you, um, I said, from a business perspective, um, it's a bad business model to Put out a product that kills your your kills your um, customers, and uh, you had a great answer to that. Um, and maybe you could share what you told me because I it, it just doesn't make any sense to me why if you're going to do something in this god awful business of drugs that it's okay if you kill your customers. That is not a good business model. Well, you know, I mean, I don't I don't remember what I what I said to you, but what I what I can tell you is in um, 2022. Uh, it was just under 110,000 uh, Americans died of a uh, drug overdose. Mm. And the, the three quarters um, attributable to uh, fentanyl, that the international crime organizations, the international drug cartels, are a major, major influence on what's happening in our country. And... They are solely motivated by profit. That's all they care about. Now, fentanyl, although it's killing their customers, saves them an incredible amount of money because you don't have to grow poppies and have poppies harvested and then processed into uh, diacetylmorphine and uh, shipped you know, from one country to another in great bulk. Fentanyl, you can have a, a, a laboratory with, you know, kind of renegade um, laboratory workers that have some, like, knowledge of chemistry putting together a shoebox of fentanyl that can be easily transported, easily smuggled, and is the equivalent of a couple of metric tons of, of heroin. So for them... The money that they save on production, distribution, all the things that go into their business model, 
makes up for the number of people who die. They just don't care. They are reaping wild profits on Vermonters with addiction. And now we have xylazine, which is a horse tranquilizer. Mm. Fentanyl is a very short-acting uh, opioid. So, you know, uh, the cartels are adding um, xylazine in with fentanyl. Xylazine, which is a horse tranquilizer, uh, causes the drug effect to be extended a little bit so they so it lasts longer. Um, xylazine also causes soft uh, tissue um, sores, infections, and wounds, and is uh, horrifying. Uh, oh. The effects of xylazine are horrifying. Both these drugs, uh, fentanyl and xylazine, are what's called a supply-side shock. These drugs have infiltrated the entire unregulated drug supply in America, and it's not because people who use drugs want them. It's because people who supply drugs are supplying them because it's economically viable for them. It saves them money. So you have uh, like a population with addiction that has no choice, that is kind of cornered into using uh, fatal, um, lethal drugs. And my, my position is that, and, and, and not just my position, but many people's position, basically the harm reductionists, uh, our position is that we need to protect this population. We need to protect them. It's as simple as that. We need to keep them alive. And if they need to keep using drugs while we keep them alive, so be it. We can't have this restriction on them. We'll help you if you abstain from drugs. That's not working. That's, that's punitive. We have to have uh, interventions that reach these people while they're using drugs so we can engage them and we can help them to build on health. We, 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 we need to protect them. It's reached that point now. Who of you, who, of, who do you know, who of us doesn't need the protection of another? You know, and, and I, I, I reflect on that. I need to be protected. And we are failing to protect this most vulnerable population. Well, thank you for all those comments. That's great. I wanted to spend the rest of the show, which is about uh, 20, 20 minutes, 25 minutes, including breaks. But um, you wrote two op-ed pieces, and I want to encourage my listeners to go to VT Digger and type in Ed's name, and you will see two opinion pieces. I want to talk about the first one, which uh, is entitled, Ed Baker, is anybody anybody responsible for this? Is anyone accountable? And you have some things to say about the Opioid Settlement Abatement Advisory Committee. And the second one, um, which you just sent me this morning, I don't know if it's, I guess it's, it's been published yet, uh, said Ed Baker, an act relating to reducing overdoses has laid the foundation. It's Act 222, which is um, an act to reducing um, overdoses, and it was passed uh, this last uh, legislative session and signed into law. Um, but first, let's just switch gears a little bit and talk about the Opioid Settlement Abatement Advisory. That's a long title for a committee. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like yeah. blah, blah, blah. Um, maybe you could talk about that and why you're not so happy. Well, you know, Pat, both of these uh, um, commentaries are, are related. And um, one is a result uh, or, you know, uh, of, of the other. 
um, you know, you can, the Opioid Abatement Committee um, was set up legislatively to, um, you know, gain, you know, with the input of, of, of many people in Vermont, it was uh, the membership was set up legislatively to determine priorities under which a lot of money uh, from the opioid industry was was uh, gleaned from Vermont through class action suits. T.J. Donovan and right. his ilk did a wonderful job of raising a lot of money for Vermont. Now, that that money um, was directly the result of many people dying year after year uh, of opioid overdose. That money... Um, was really earmarked to, uh, in an immediate and efficacious way, prevent the death of those most at risk for dying. So, you know that that committee then was 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 charged with a mission. What happened was, and um, and what I, what my, my my observation was was that the committee was, 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 it was not moving in a, in a forthright uh, demeanor. Um, it was not, um, you know, uh, considering um, uh, innovative interventions. It was, in my opinion, uh, really, you know, spending idle time reviewing programs that had been in place for years that, you know, didn't really do much about uh, preventing overdose death. I was very unhappy with it. I, I, I chose as, um, you know, if you look at open meeting law, uh, I, I, I chose under the, the open meeting law to attend the meetings and to comment at the end of the meeting. And, and what I saw was um, uh, an agenda that was, you know, developed by the chair that really didn't have any input from committee members. What I saw was um, conversations and discussions um, that was, you know, kind of limited and controlled, and there wasn't really the opportunity for people to mm-hmm. speak out on some uh, creative ideas that they may have had, namely harm reduction. Um, people were actually ignored. I know of certain uh, requests that were made to have uh, experts on overdose prevention centers that were completely ignored. And uh, this really uh, got my attention. And as an activist, I chose to speak out, you know, in no uncertain terms about it. And um, that first that, that first uh, commentary you cited, is anybody responsible for this? Is anyone accountable? Was, was a result of, of that commitment to speak out uh, as an activist. Um, just as an aside, if you look at Governor Scott's veto, of H-728 on June 7th, 2022. H-728 was an act regarding uh, responses to overdose, and one of the provisions of it was to establish a study group, a study group looking at overdose prevention centers. The governor vetoed the act, and he said, it seems counterintuitive to divert resources from proven harm reduction strategies to plan injection sites without clear data on the effectiveness of this approach, without clear data on the effectiveness of this approach. That was my mission with the Opioid uh, Abatement Council, was to get professionals in front of that council that could, could present 
clear data so that council could move forward based in, 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 in a realistic perspective of what is effective and, um, you know, what we can do to save lives immediately, urgently in Vermont. That didn't happen the first year, um, but it's happening now. They've had one expert, Brandon Marshall, before them, largely as a result of advocacy within the committee meeting, outside the committee meeting, uh, the state legislature, and people outside the state um, who, who take interest in Vermont. Also, we've all kind of appealed to Dr. Levine to bring some expert witnesses in, and he's heard us. So Brandon Marshall, an expert, already has testified on the 22nd of this month. Kaylin C., who is the project director at On Point, the first overdose prevention center in America that has been extremely successful. They've reversed 1,000 overdoses. They've saved 1,000 lives in 20 months. She will be testifying. Um, uh, uh, another researcher, uh, Mary Kennedy from British Columbia, will be testifying on the 22nd of this month. This is a result of advocacy, relentless advocacy on the part of people wanting to shape the process of that committee toward innovative harm reduction strategies. Now, I know I'm talking a lot, but let me just finish one thought. This is like the, the, the missing prong in a multi-pronged approach. That second um, uh, commentary, an act relating to reducing overdoses, has laid the foundation. If you if you read that, you you'll see that this committee has taken really revolutionary steps forward because of advocacy. And in its first um, memorandum to the state legislature, had allocated over seven million dollars specifically to harm reduction interventions. And this, again, I'll say it, is a result of, of Dr. Levine listening to advocates and realizing that the advocates were not going away. They were not going to say what is like scientifically proven and based in compassion. They were going to push for harm reduction that the money was not going to get spent on education, on prevention, on law enforcement, on existing programs. We were going to do stuff that was uh, innovative. And um, bravo to the advocates, bravo to that committee. And just let me finish with one thought, because what we have now is a precedent. What we have now is a foundation. And what we need to do now is build on that foundation and build on that um, on that precedent, and the way to build on it, it was it was the next logical, science-based, um, compassionate step is overdose prevention centers. These things work. People trust them. They go to them. They inject drugs there, yes, or they smoke drugs there, and if there's an overdose, it's reversed. And in the meantime, what's happening is they're being engaged. There's what I like to call uh, unconditional safety. There's no punitive attitude. There's no unrealistic expectations. There's no, oh, yeah, gotcha. You used a drug, you're out of the program, or you missed an appointment, you're out of the program. There's none of that happening. It's unconditional safety. It's come to us. 
We love you. We think you are important enough. We're here for you. We're going to help you stay alive. And you know what? When you are motivated, when that little spark, that same spark that I told you about, that, that I found in myself in 1984, that little flame that hadn't died out, when, when you find that and you can communicate to me how I can help you, I will be here for you. I will be here to help you. I will not abandon you. You're worth it. You're not a criminal. And I heard two very important phrases. One was uh, harm reduction, which uh, mm -hmm. means that you meet somebody where they are and mm -hmm. you don't leave them there. You you work with them. And, uh, uh, and also uh, the other thing I heard was unconditional safety, where um, that environment is free of judgment, uh, free of any rigid demands, and... Um, no stigma. So those are the two key phrases that we take away from this discussion. And um, and I have, well, I just have to do a little kudo to uh, Dr. Levine because he listened. And um, we need more of that, I think, in, in Burlington I and mean, in Montpelier where people listen. Um, so good for you, Ed, for um, you and all the other advocates for um, keeping the pressure on. If you've got somebody like Dr. Levine to listen and respond, uh, we're be in good shape. So um, you talked about Burlington. Is there a, um, in this op-ed, is there a, um, a center there now? Well, let, let, let me, let me um, uh, just say that you had mentioned that um, $50 billion, you know. Right. We, this has been another 17 years now. We're going to be getting millions of dollars a year. Yep. And this is not from uh, Vermont taxpayers. This is in addition to that. So this money needs to go directly where it's meant to go, to the uh, immediate and efficacious interventions and saving the lives of people most at risk. And if the advocates can keep the Opioid Abatement Committee focused on that, then we can continue to build. And it's my hope that, you know, one day we'll see four or five years with a continuing decrease and overdose deaths, rather than, you know, um, you know, ten years with accelerating increases in overdose and overdose death. So, Burlington does not have n no place in Vermont has an overdose ah. prevention center. There are two in um, New York, and there are two that will open in Rhode Island. Um, the two in New York are doing uh, phenomenal work, saving lives, referring people to treatment, cleaning up, um, you know, uh, uh, drug use, debris in public areas, uh, uh, saving uh, incredible amounts of money, uh, uh, um, decreasing emergency response, decreasing police investigation, decreasing hospital stays. Uh, it, it, there's some estimates that They've saved $15 million to the city of New York in, in 20 months. Now, in, in Burlington, what we have is safe recovery through the Howard Center, which is a harm reduction center, um, a safe syringe program. And um, safe recovery has, um, you know, over the years, established incredible trust with the most marginalized um, um, population. And a survey was done uh, there asking people who had overdosed, who had witnessed overdose, who were injecting drugs, a marginalized population. If we had an overdose prevention center, would you use it? Uh, 
90 something percent, 93, 94% of the people polled said yes, we would use it. So we have a population that's at imminent risk for death that is willing to use an overdose prevention center if we establish one. We have Mayor Weinberger in favor. We have the city council with uh, two resolutions in favor. We have Sarah George, the state's attorney, in favor. We had T.J. Donovan, uh, Sarah George was the um, state's attorney. We had T.J. Uh, Donovan, the, um, the attorney general, in favor. Uh, Charity Clark has not um, taken a public position yet. But there's, we had service providers in favor. So there's a lineup in Vermont now getting ready to, to implement this. What we need is uh, funds, and what we need is uh, leadership uh, to, to, to guide us through this. And uh, I think Rhode Island, Rhode Island is probably the best model because they've based their overdose prevention centers on legislation that, that enacts laws that creates immunity. Uh, there's federal law that prohibits uh, overdose prevention centers, so it gets a little... It gets a little complicated, but Rhode Island has a model that that um that, that seems to get around that. So this is the way uh, forward in Vermont, and um, you know I have a lot of hope that this is going to happen in Vermont. So tell me when we have about a minute left, because there's something I want to say to your audience, Pat. Yeah, well, we have about four four minutes, and um, I just wanted to not switch gears because it's the same topic, but you mentioned the seminar, or the summit, I guess they called it, at the Essex mm-hmm. Fairground um, just yeah. um, on the 11th, around the Friday the 11th. Yeah, and it was. How, what, how, what, what was the... What was their track? What was, Were they on board with this? Were they talking the same things that you're talking about? Well, you know, no, no. This was a recovery uh, uh, summit. There were um, many, many boots, probably 60 or 70 boots, so all providers, people in the recovery uh, community, people in the treatment community. It was a beautiful Dr. Levine spoke. Uh, Monica Hutt spoke. They had some people with lived experience who spoke. Daniel Franklin from Generous Promise um, uh, spoke. And um, it's a beautiful uh, convening of people in the field where we network and we, we share stories and we, we, we kind of like regenerate ourselves to go back, you know, into the, in, into the front lines. And it was just beautiful. Um, there was no mention of overdose prevention centers from the podium. However, as I, you know, and I talked to a lot of people at this um, uh, uh, summit, there is an incredible amount of support among the treatment community among the re- recovering community, among the medical community, uh, among people who use drugs, there is a groundswell of support for this. Um, it's still controversial, and um, there's a lot of people who are government employees who really cannot uh, vocally like support it. It's like they just they're forbidden to 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 advocate for causes like this. But we're, we're pushing forward, we're, we're gaining steam, we're gaining momentum at all times, and there's legislation um, uh, 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 pending that will, you know, be, be, be uh, acted on this legislative uh, session Ed, we're, that Ed, creates immunity for overdose prevention centers. Um, there's, a, like, a Taylor Small in the House, uh, Tanya Vahovsky 
in the Senate. There's like growing support within our and, state legislature. And I don't mean to interrupt you, but you asked for a minute. You probably have a little less than that now, but the, um, 30 seconds, so Ed. You've got to do it in 30 seconds. For those of you, for the uh, listening audience who want to do something, on August 31st in City Hall Park, Burlington, we are having the second uh, International Overdose Awareness Day gathering. We are partnering with Team Sharing Vermont, which is a group of parents who have actually lost children to drug overdose. We'll have speakers. And if you want to show your solidarity and be there with these parents and learn about these issues and learn more about what you can do about these issues, please, August 31st, um, from 5 to 7 p.m. at City Hall Park. Ed, thank you very much for being on the show.